0: Okay, well, then um, then I will get us started. It's a little after six here, and my name is John Joseph, and it's an absolute pleasure uh, to welcome you uh, to our uh, to SCR's uh, Meet the Scholar program. Uh, for those that have not participated in one of these before, um, they were started um, last year, uh, and it was an attempt to get uh, our community together uh, to help folks get to know scholars in the field through a candid conversation. Um, obviously, we were we we had we couldn't meet in person. There was a desire to create the sense of community. Um, we had great success. I I want to say there was 24. Tim, I might have that number off, but it's something in that neighborhood. Um, we there were you know quite quite a few, and uh, they were all well attended, and it was such a great hit that the leadership of STR wanted to continue keep the ball rolling and, and continue them this year. And this is one of those. Um, I've been lucky enough to uh, moderate a uh, few others, um, and this one obviously holds a, a special place of uh, of excitement for me here. I'm going to share my screen. And bring up this slide here. Okay, you can see this slide. Is that good? Okay. Well, um, it, it and I guess I, before I get started, just a few, uh, I think, uh, sort of uh, ground rules. I think we'll encourage folks to keep your uh, microphone on mute. We'll try to shoot for about 45 minutes where I'll sort of, you know, talk with Viva and, and get her... Thoughts on a variety of subjects. Um, folks are absolutely willing, uh, w- welcome to um, to put questions in the chat or save them until you know uh, we're finished, and we'll make sure that we have plenty of time for folks to ask her whatever is on your mind. Um, so, with that, I will you know introduce our uh, our scholar uh, uh, who is uh, for me a co-author a friend uh, and someone really to uh, look up to in this field, uh, Vibha Gaba, uh, who's at INSEAD. Um, and just a little bit about her. Um, she is professor of entrepreneurship at INSEAD. So she got her prof- she got full uh, last year, I think. Um, and her PhD is from the Lundqvist, uh College of Business at the University of Oregon. Um, she studies uh, a variety of topics, including diffusion processes uh, behavioral models of adaptation, performance feedback, aspirations, uh, multiple goals and, and structure. Uh, she also does work on corporate entrepreneurship and, and venture capital. Um, she has an international presence. She's you know, obviously very active at SMS in the leadership there, uh, as well as uh, OMT at, uh, at the Academy Um, You look at her Vita, she's got numerous awards and and recognitions. she's a star teacher across programs uh, and has a variety of honors uh, from the Academy of Management. And most recently, uh, she has taken uh, one of the new editor roles at Strategic Management Journal. So I'm sure we're all anxious to hear about that and what she's thinking about the field of strategy. Uh, So welcome. Uh, Viba to our meet the scholar
1: <laughs> thank you, John, for a very generous uh, introduction yeah. so let let's
0: um I have some you know uh pre prepared questions maybe we'll get to, to all of them or, or or not, but you know i I think one of the things that um folks are often interested in is kind of how you got into academia. You know what? How did you get to choose this career path, uh, and ended up uh, at uh, at Oregon, and, and then eventually in Seattle?
1: Yeah. Um, okay. First of all, I really actually want to acknowledge the SDR division uh, for for doing this wonderful initiative, and for of course inviting me as well. Um, Tim, Zhao, you know, Asim and, and Samina. Uh, they're doing great, you know, uh, things for the SDR division um, and I have been involved with some of the initiatives last year as well. So it's, it's really nice. So thank you for doing this. It's, it's lovely. Um, John, to, <laughs> to your question. Um, I realized being in academia for so long that how good we get or become at telling stories and rationalizing, uh, you know, things. Um, And I guess I could rationalize that it was all sort of thought out and I would enter into academia, get into a PhD, you know, go get a job in a business school so forth. But it, it wasn't really like this, right? So I think I... I knew what I didn't want to do, rather than what I wanted to do. To be honest, um, and and two things were very salient in my mind when I was I was uh, in college. Uh, one thing was that I had a complete and utter sort of you know lack of interest in finding a job after graduating. <laughs> I didn't want to work in the corporate world, uh, and I showed no interest of of doing that. Um, and um, and I. And one thing I knew is that i didn 't want to be told what to do. I wanted to do what I wanted to do, <laughs> and, and I thought you know staying in school was a wonderful way to achieve both these things so that 's part of part of the you know I think background uh, story of how I sort of got into academia. Um, I think the second thing is the family context. Um, my mom was a teacher. My grandfather was a teacher. Uh, you know, my parents really, um, you know, appreciated, uh, you know, education. They wanted their kids to educate themselves as much as they wanted to. They never put pressure on us, but they always encouraged that, you know, do what you want to do, uh, study what you like to do, and so forth. Um, and, and my mom was really, really... Uh, Supportive of trying things, so she would always encourage me to try things and be adventurous. So, um, I think I think that was it. I mean, I was also in a graduate school where I saw a lot of my cohorts, um, you know, applying for PhD program in the US, and and I said, well, that seems like a interesting option, and um, so I. Literally, I think I stumbled into it rather than it was, it was very planned and and well thought out kind of uh, path uh, for me. But the interesting thing is that I did my master's in sociology. So, um, and this was in Delhi School of Economics um, in India. And Business schools were not, you know, known in, in that environment. I mean, I knew sociologists, anthropologists, but not business school people. Um, and this is not what I saw people around me applying for a PhD. Many of them did PhD in sociology, or but not, not in business school. Um, this was something that I discovered I wanted to do because as just as a, a you know, stop just to entertain myself, I became a journalist for, for about a year and a half and worked for a financial daily in India. And my job there was to really write stories about a lot of multinational firms that were entering into India and, and try to understand their entry strategies in emerging markets and especially in India. So I would go and interview all these managers uh, working for these MNCs, and ask them, you know, how did they decide to enter into India, what was their plan, and I really enjoyed those conversations, and I found what they were doing very fascinating, and that's how, you know, I started thinking about organizations, you know, how they work, how they operate, uh, you know, uh, how they make decisions, and that was one of the, I think, experience that led me to explore business schools as a possible way to do a PhD. And especially in org theory and management. So
0: it clearly, um, you know, got you interested in in the, 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 you know, organizations and decision making. How did you end up with the dissertation topic, diffusion processes? How did you kind of get latched onto that first? I know I mentioned you got a lot of, um, you know, research interest, and we certainly want to talk about that. But what about the early stuff?
1: Yeah, so so I think I think um, I wasn't really sort of looking, f- I wasn't really focused on diffusion per se as a topic when I was uh, you know exploring topics for my dissertation. Uh, but I had you know these chance encounters. Uh, one of the ex PhD students of Allen um, used to work, uh had graduated from the phd program decided didn't want to go into academia and decided to go and work for intel capital and and he came uh for a lunch with with Alan, and Alan invited me so i was just sitting and having a conversation with him where he was explaining his job to me and that time you know it was very new and he was explaining what intel was trying to do they were setting up these corporate venture capital it was a corporate venture capital unit they Mandate was to go and invest in these startup companies uh, and, and to nurture them and try to figure out if there were any sort of, you know, strategic sort of uh, complementarities between what the startup was doing as well as Intel Capital. And they, so he was explaining his job. It sounded super interesting. I'd never heard about this. Um, so I went and I started reading about it. And and that time, Um, This was in in many, many years ago in 2000, when there was a lot of excitement and a dot-com boom happening and to be followed by a bust very soon. So I got super interested in his role, in his job. And it was, you know, in the same spirit. I was talking to these managers, people trying to understand what they do and get interested just in in the ideas, uh, in their jobs and their, you know, challenges in one sense so um so i got interested then i realized there was a big uh, you know industry conference on on this particular topic which is happening in monterey um, uh, california uh, very soon and i asked alan if i could go and attend that conference Um, and i did and that was you know where there were about uh, you know 200 odd people representing a lot of companies, a lot of high-profile companies, like, especially in the IT sector, you know, Sun Microsystems, Adobe, IBM, all these big companies, and there were people from there, and I just, you know, was completely and utterly fascinated by the phenomena, right? and and then you know it's a part of coming back to your office your basement office as a phd student and figuring figuring out you know how do you study this right what kind of theories do you really adopt uh, what questions you ask um uh, that would you know help you understand and also explain uh, this to a wider uh, academic community and i think uh, that was that was how um the the sheer interest and excitement around corporate venture capital practices uh and and the diffusion of it uh was you know was something that led me to uh, you know think of it as a diffusion process um and so i studied the adoption of, of these programs uh among the i.t population id firms yeah
0: Now you mentioned a couple people, um, the PhD student and obviously Alan, maybe you could talk a little bit about during this context of sort of finding dissertation and getting it done, who your, you know, who were the important people that, you know, shaped you uh, as a young burgeoning scholar?
1: I think definitely Alan. Um, he, was, he was a huge sort of an early influence in, in thinking. And, and there are certain things that I really uh, appreciated about Alan. Um, I think uh, he, Alan is a qualitative researcher. And, and I thought I was going to do a dissertation, which was, you know, entirely qualitative. And, and I would go to the field. I would collect data and, and write a dissertation uh, based on that qualitative data. Um, I didn't quite end up doing that, but I really, what I learned from Alan and really appreciated was going into the field and just talking to the, to the people that you want to actually study, right? Um, and why, uh, how did I benefit from it? I think it helped me ask more interesting questions. Uh, about the phenomena. It helped me conceptualize my research uh, better, I think. It helped me theorize my research better. So I think, you know, um, so I, you know, this is something I really learned from Alan that even if you don't want to do qualitative work, I think it's really absolutely important for us to go to the field and just interact with the organizations, if you can, or the people and try to understand the world from their perspective. I think it makes you a better researcher. Um, so I think that that I think I still do, if I can, uh, very often in any new project that I am working on. So I think Alan, big influence of Alan, and and uh, I think I also um, through him met through his network met a a series of scholars in our field who were, who were just extremely generous with their time and, and would talk to you and, uh, you know, and, and in little ways kind of influence your thinking and, and your development as a scholar. And there's so many of them.
0: Yeah. It sounds like Alan was also willing to give you the, some, some advisors have a heavier hand than others, but he was willing to let you take this and go in a more you know, the quantitative. Yeah,
1: direction. yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, uh, I think uh, if I know Alan well, I think his approach really is to be a supportive advisor. He wants to encourage you to do what you find interesting, and he wants you to do it the way you find interesting and study it the way you want to study it. So, so I think, um, yeah, I, I, I thought he was an extremely supportive advisor. <laughs> and that's it.
0: So obviously, people matter a lot in our careers. I'm wondering, was there an early paper, series of papers, uh, area of study, something that you know contributed um, to your thinking?
1: <laughs> and I think, John, you know the answer to
0: that, right? <laughs> so is that a loaded question? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I think my favorite book is, of course, you know, all-time favorite book that I read in my, in in our field is is the, the the behavioral theory of the firm, the organizations, administrative behavior, all the work by Jim March and Herb Simon, um, Dick Steard. I think these Carnegie School books were quite uh, quite interesting, useful. Um, in in my thinking and in my development as a scholar so I re- and and very enjoyable I mean I am completely and utterly fascinated how um, Jim March and Dick Steard, sitting in their office in the universities could sort of capture so well the complexity of of how organizations work um, they I think really uh, capture the complexity of it really really well and I
0: enjoyed that. Well, and, and your your work has obviously a lot of it is in behavioral theory of the firm, but different aspects of it. How do you? We have a lot of junior folks uh, participating, a lot of PhD students thinking about what to pursue. How um, do you decide on you know now beyond your dissertation but How do you decide what to study? How do you decide on your research questions? Do you look for some more inspiration in the setting or what, what sort of motivates you now?
1: I think, I think the way I like to ask interesting questions. I don't worry about theories, at least initially. I want to ask an interesting question. I want to ask something that puzzles me and I want to know the answer to it and so a lot of you know when i'm thinking about initial projects i don't read our papers i don't read our theories i read newspapers <laughs> um, a lot i read magazines and and uh, because it's it's an observation it helps me see the the world the the organizational world that i actually want to study and and the decision-making processes so it gives me insights on what's interesting, what's going on there. So I read a lot of news stories. And then, you know, if I get interested in something, I dig deeper. And and it's only after I have a clearer sense of what's an interesting question that I want to ask, I go back to our literature and try to uh, see uh, if we already know the answer. Um, which is, which is fine, at least. Uh, My puzzle has been solved relatively painlessly. (laughs) If not, then I try to, you know, develop it further into a more sort of a coherent research uh, project. Um, But, but what it also, you know, so that's, that's, uh, but but after you start working in a particular domain and you know the literature well you also know what are some of the things that we don't know and and so it's easier to identify what you know gaps in the literature and and ask questions around it so i think um i think for for me the most uh, always the most important thing is to ask an interesting question um rather than worry about, you know, what domain, what topic, and so forth.
0: Well, this will sound like a loaded question, too, but (laughs) co-authors. Obviously, you've had many, um, but, you know, uh, a lot of folks that are starting out trying to decide how to find co-authors, whether they should find co-authors, should they find seniors, should they find juniors? They, could you maybe provide a little insight there uh, as to how you approach that?
1: Yeah. And Asim has immediately a question which has popped off on my, on my uh, computer, on my screen saying, how did you end up working like, with a loser like John? <laughs> and Asim, I was just gonna say, that my selection criteria for, for co-authors is to have people whose first name and last name starts with the same letter, like John Joseph. <laughs> no um, I think I think um, I think it's really important when I'm looking for co-authors to really be able to connect with them, um, you know you just don't you talk to people and you get this intuitive sense whether you enjoy you know you would enjoy meeting these this person more often talking to them, and I think I need to get that sense. Uh, Because I realize it is really important when you work with your co authors, you spend a lot of time with them and you work sometimes under a lot of pressure deadlines. And and sometimes, you know, your projects sort of don't evolve in a way you anticipate. So there are setbacks and and, and so forth. And it, it's a very stressful time sometimes. So you want to be with a person uh, you can connect with, you can understand with. Um, so I have been actually very, very lucky to have really wonderful co-authors who became very good and close friends of mine also, uh, eventually. Um, so, but but I think it's very important for me to be able to Connect with a person, be comfortable with them, um, and then work with them. I think that 's really important. I think as a junior scholar, one thing that I realize is that you want to find co authors that have the same sense of urgency about doing about you know doing research that you have about publishing and so forth right that 's really important. Because sometimes what happens is when junior scholars sort of collaborate with with uh, uh, senior professors, um, you know, they learn a lot. They learn the craft of writing and presenting their research, taking it through the review process. So you learn a lot. But um, senior scholars are also very busy. And for them, uh, you know, the sense of urgency is sometimes missing, right? So if the paper is one month late, two months late, they're not gonna lose sleep over it. But for junior scholars, it can be very consequential. Um, So I think um, it's important to find people, especially early on in their career, who also, you know, are as driven and as motivated as you are uh, to bring the projects to closure, I think that's that's really important uh, considerations, especially for the junior scholars. Um, I, you know working with your cohorts, you teach each other a lot. I think with John and I, we taught each other quite a bit, we learned from each other um, quite a bit, and it was it's also really fun uh, working with the uh, cohorts I, in my experience.
0: Uh, I, I do remember you saying at one point that it was, it was during the revision of a particular paper, and you said something to the effect of, you were talking to me more than your husband. <laughs>
1: exactly. So, so you know, when we, I, I know, and, and I think this has happened to us quite a bit, when you're revising paper, you speak so much to your co-authors so frequently, um that you land up chatting to them more than your your you know partners and it's it's very funny so i knew exactly when john was sleeping why he was getting angry with whom he was getting angry what did he eat for dinner i knew everything and i think the same for him as well um so yeah so it's a very intensive collaboration so i think it's important to be uh with people Um, The other thing I realized, you know, over time is if you want to spend more time with people in academia, you need to do research projects with them, right? Because that's a wonderful way to spend a lot of time with people you like, you admire, you appreciate and want to connect with. Um, So, yeah, I think that's important.
0: So you mentioned um, the role of, you know, talking to managers, the fact that so much of your work is informed by talk, you know, getting out there in the field, even if it's not a qualitative study, there's an element of understanding uh, that comes from that. And I'm wondering, maybe shifting a little bit to teaching. How you know, a how your research and your teaching interface, and maybe more generally, how you approach your teaching and incorporating some of the research that you do if you do do that.
1: Yeah, um, you know, um, it's so at INSEAD, um, you know, executive education is a big part of our core portfolio, teaching portfolio. It's a very prominent part as well. So invariably, everyone who works at NCI at some point sort of transitions to teaching executives. I did this transition relatively early in my career. So I started with the MBAs and the PhD. We don't have an undergrad program. Um, but then I very quickly transitioned to teaching executives. And part of the reason was what I wanted to teach, which was essentially topics related to organizational change um I thought that people with more experienced people could relate better to the complexity of 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 you know change and how to orchestrate change in organizations, which is a big challenge um so so i when but when I was making these transitions, you know everyone would, one would sort of make you anxious about teaching executives. Oh, you know, these are such experienced people. They have years of experience. They are, you know, how can you teach them? You've never worked in an organization. Uh, you know, you look young and and so forth. So, you know, the, so I, I was anxious. Because I felt the, you know, I looked young. I was a female. I was going and talking to these people who were in, you know, important positions in big organizations, and I had never worked in what effectively in a corporate world. Um, So I, I actually decided I was not going to be defensive about this at all. So I went and I stood and I said, "Hey, I'm an academic. I know theory of change, and I want to talk to you about it." You tell me whether it works in practice or not, and we'll have a conversation about it. So, and I think you know it worked really well for me because what I realized was a lot of these executives, when they come for uh, come to a business school to do a course, whether it is a short-term course or a you know course spread over weeks and months, um, they don't want to he- they want to hear what we have to tell them, right? and and i think um and and this was a very nice and a pleasant experience for me so i felt really comfortable going there and saying this is what we know in theory do you think this works in your world if not why does not why does it not work and and so i so that was that was one thing so i was not going to be defensive about where I'm coming from, what I'm bringing to the conversation, because I think it's important, I realize. Um, the second thing is, um, you know, I structured my class in a way that I could help these people think about their experiences and learn from their experiences, as well from others. So my classes are extremely interactive, uh, where I try to avoid lecturing, and you know, um, these guys have little patience for lectures anyway. <laughs> Um, But I want to, I want to create an environment where people can have conversations, they can learn uh, abstract ideas, the frameworks that we bring for them, um, but also share the experience and and reflect on their experience and learn from them, right? Um, And and I have no sort of, you know, uh, problems pushing them about Superstitious learning, right? So some people learn from their people learn from their experience in different ways. So I push them and saying, you know, what do you learn from that? From this experience, you know, what does it tell you? How would you do some things differently? Um, so it is about bringing more rigor into their uh, thinking processes. I think that's what I try to accomplish in my class, but in a very structured way. Um, and I think it's worked for me. So I have been teaching actually mainly executives for almost a decade now at NCN. That's much of my um, on-load teaching here. Yeah.
0: Just a, a little bit on the teaching thing. I think you know young scholars, people, people, rookies, I guess in particular, um, often are daunted by the teaching task. Mm. And NCN teaching is notoriously, uh, you know, tough. And I'm wondering maybe advice, something that, you know, some things that maybe you've experienced that have helped you, that have smoothed your, uh, and and made you successful and and helped you win these, uh, you know, teaching recognitions.
1: Yeah. So I think one of the rookie mistakes we all do is that we focus too much on the content, right? So we, when we are doing our teaching prep, Uh, we spend an enormous amount of time uh, working on the content and squeezing as much content as we can in a very short period of time. I think that's a security blanket, to be honest, right? Uh, The more sort of papers we can talk of, the more frameworks we can talk of, the more things we can talk of, we feel, you know, that would be better. It doesn't work because I think in teaching, it's not just the content uh, which matters. It's the delivery that matters as well. Um, So I think it's really important when you're approaching your teaching um, to also focus or give enough attention to how you're going to communicate the ideas, right? It's not just having ideas. It's about communicating ideas. That's what a teaching is a lot about. Um, That's one thing um the other thing um i think is to be uh, again you know we are academics we think in complex ways and we want to um you know convey the complexity of the idea in their most fullest and comprehensive form um i think it's important to be very clear for every session that you teach what are the two points you will make right uh what are the two most important points that you want to convey to the audience or to your students that's that's important to have that clarity in your mind because then you can really have nice conversations because you know where you want to get to right and and then once you know where you want to get to um i think uh Uh, With experience, you find wonderful ways to get there through conversations. And that's what I, you know, that was my uh, learning from my experience, right? So not to cram too much content, uh, but also worry about how you're going to communicate or deliver that content. And do it in a, a, and not sort of, and have clarity on what are the key messages. That's, I think, the most important thing to think about.
0: Sorry about that. Um, Okay, so a little bit about, so, you know, education, certainly the MBA audience, the executive education audience. Sorry. One of the things that comes up a lot for mid-career folks is that you're beginning to work a lot more with PhD students. Wondering there, maybe some you know, some of your insights in how you approach uh working with uh students, selecting them, guiding them, uh, you know, what advice what 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 experience have you had there?
1: Yeah. Um <laughs> I think um I think one of the most important sort of advice um I'll give to the PhD student is that work on something that you truly like or interested in or curious about. Um, And the reason is because you're gonna live with it for a long time. So you better choose a topic, a question that really excites you. Um, Otherwise it's it's painful, it's really painful. Uh, So for example, the, the dissertation topic that you will choose in the PhD program it's not that you will forget all about it once you graduate, you will continue to think and work on that topic, you know, years after you graduate. So you spend a significant amount of your life and time on a, on a particular, uh, you know, research project. So it's really important. I mean, I I cannot emphasize more the importance of working on something that really interests you, that you're curious about. Um, So so it is. It's not about. It's it's about solving puzzles. It's about answering questions. So you have to. You know, you have to be super interested. So that's one thing, right? So I, I t- sort of try to assess: is this particular student really interested in, in the topic that they're proposing for their research? Are they really fascinated by it? Are they intrigued by it? Or are they just, you know, picking something in a very um, because someone asked them to study that, or they think it would be easier to publish that particular topic. Um, so, so that's one of the, one of the key criteria I sort of use. Um, I think, uh, what is also, um, important for the PhD student is how, um, you know, if they are sort of willing to take initiatives right and you know would go there and do whatever they need to do in order to find interesting data for for a question they are asking or find ways and means to uh you know uh, get feedback on on something that they really need feedback so somebody who's really you know willing and would take initiatives and wouldn't require, you know, constant hand-holding. Uh, because that, that makes it hard, right? Uh, for the PhD student and I think also for the advisors as well. Um, so I think um, self-driven <laughs> individuals are actually, and PhD students are more fun to work with for me.
0: Another related question that comes to mind now that we're you're, you're talking about this, but often um, we are faced with PhD students, PhD students who are struggling, who need help. I think in this COVID time, that might be even especially true. They're remote, whatever. Yeah. Um, for any PhD students from Irvine that are online, I, I'm not talking about you, <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, you know, yeah. Any advice there, uh, again, given given the sort of the situation we're all in right now?
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of my most, um, you know, pleasant surprises about our uh, profession has been that there are such, there's so many people who are so generous with their time um, and genuinely care about, you know, uh, ideas, right? And I, I think you know, if if our PhD students, no matter where they are, send an email to a scholar, um, you know, related to who does work on, on the topic that they are working on, and ask them for a meeting, I would be very surprised that if people don't respond, right? Many of the people would be really happy to have a conversation with you over Zoom um and talk about it they would be willing to read your paper give you feedback so i think it's again about you know phd students being proactive and taking initiatives and seeking what they need um in terms of overcoming the challenges that they face especially due to the the lockdown and the covid and and the isolation right so i that's what i've been trying to tell the phd students at ncia and you know you should never Feel alone or lonely, uh, you should just you know make the best of the situation, right? So go and you know send an email to somebody you want to talk to, or send your paper to somebody, ask them for the feedback, and you'd be surprised how how receptive people would be uh, to this, right? So um, I think uh, I think being proactive, I think can can help. Um, But I think our association, you know, what SDR division is doing, for example, creating, you know, coffee and conversations with among PhD students and and scholars. Last year, Asim was doing that a lot, Samina, I think that was a wonderful initiative. So I met a lot of very nice PhD students, Uh, I, you know, over Zoom. I didn't know them, they didn't know me, but we had good conversations and it was was really fun.
0: I think that's very helpful to be, but thank you. Um, so obviously you have uh, recently um, become an editor for strategic management journal, congratulations on that. Uh, we still have not celebrated with a drink, but we will. Um, so this, you know, as someone in this position and I'm sure we all would are, you know, want to know So what do you see for the field, um, both in terms of opportunities and maybe challenges going forward? um, And, you know, from your perspective, particularly being new, because you're sort of coming into this now, I mean, you've published it, but now sort of, you know, coming in as a new uh, editor.
1: (laughs) So, I you know I so so SMJ is not new to me right because I've been working in my AE role for almost 6 years at the journal now and I've learned uh, I've gotten to know the journal and the people associated with the journal quite well and and you know I my appreciation for the journal obviously has <laughs> increased um, a lot a lot um You know SMJ is an incredibly open-minded journal um they uh that's that's what I think it is and I really like that attribute about SMJ um that it is a very open-minded journal it has become a very open-minded journal if you disagree with that and I think um you know the editors anyone who is associated with the editing role at SMJ is is you know really welcomes um any topics uh related to strategic management of course uh or links to st- strategic management um but they also care about well executed research right and i think that's important right um so the rigor matters um and and i think um so so that's that's you know i i don't know if i'm answering your question well, so, uh, it is, it is, um, um, SMG is a broad journal. It, uh, you know, it interests a lot of, uh, a lot of topics are of interest to the journal. Um,
0: maybe trends that you've seen, um, you know, both as an AE and now of course in your, your yeah. current uh,
1: role. Yeah. So, I think one trend that is clearer to me than the others that I've observed in the last few years is um, the the methodological bar for for uh, is going up in in our journals. I think this is true for all journals, not just SMJ. Um, so so we care about the well executed research. That's important, and I think that's one of the most Common reason papers get rejected um, in in SMJ and I think in other journals as well. There's always you know a gap between the conceptual ideas and how those conceptual ideas are executed, right? So that gap is is one of the most sort of common reason for rejection of papers um, at the journal. So um, so I think uh, one so so I think. And we've learned about new methods. There's an infusion of new methodological tools in our field, um, uh, better ways to sort of, you know, make causal claims, for example, to, uh, you know, other methods to analyze big data, you know, topic modeling, machine learning methods. Um, I think I see a clear trend that more and more work that we will see uh, being submitted to the journal uh, will not only have uh you know big data, but also you know more new methodologies which allow us to capture um, capture you know uh, interesting sort of <laughs> um, attributes about organizations and and uh, and their organizing behavior more yet je- you know in in very general terms.
0: Well, now we'll, we'll um, I'm sure you're going to get more of these types of questions as we go forward here. I'm going to switch gears. First thing, I mm-hmm. think there is a request to have a group photo while we're sort of in the middle here. Uh, so, Zhao, I guess you're going to do a group shot.
1: Yes, uh, if uh, everyone who's dressed, as Amina used to say, who's dressed from waist up. (laughs) If you could turn on your video uh, and we would just take a a screenshot. All right, one, two, three, say cheese. Okay, we got it. Thank you.
0: Okay, so um, the uh, I'm going to channel Samina at the end uh, with a few of the crazy questions, She uh, not crazy, but you know, uh, interesting questions that she has, but I'll save those for the end and, and right now turn to some of the questions that have come up uh, in the chat and then open it up also uh, to folks who are, are with us. Um, the first question is, uh, Tim actually uh, put in a question. Tim, would you like to share that question? Yeah, Sure. I just, um, I told you before we started that I just participated in the STR paper development workshop and we had people like Jackson Nickerson and Brian Silverman and Xavier uh, Castaner um, and we asked them to give tips to these young scholars and I'm catching you on the spot here, um, but uh, you, and you've given us some tips already, but I was just wanted to know if you had any others that were at the, you know, that uh, at the ready.
1: I think I think uh, Tim. I would I would um, I would repeat. Uh, you know, I would reiterate some of the things uh, I said earlier, and I think it, it's also partly because I see they benefited me in in my you know myself as a phd scholar is about you know finding really uh topics and questions that interest you because <laughs> uh that that's important i think we underestimate uh the the uh, importance of that um you have to always ask yourself why is this interesting what you're studying uh why is this interesting for yourself uh, because ultimately, you also have to convey that to the readers of your research, right? Uh, so I think it's important to ask that question early um, and and ask it uh, genuinely, in one sense, right? Is it really interesting? Um, definitely. Um, uh, I think uh, the second important sort of tip, I would say, is to be proactive, you know? Um, people are nice in our field, <laughs> I or at least I've had really I have I'm the privileged one to have really met a lot of nice people I so I have this impression that we have lots of nice folks in our in our community uh, who are very generous very helpful um, so seek help when you need to um, and be proactive about it I think what you don't want to do as a as a young scholar or as a PhD student and just sit by yourself in in the PhD in your office. I think that's not going to get you anywhere. Um, So that's important to, um, you know, we, I I think all of you know, (laughs) but it's worth sort of highlighting again, that research is actually a very, very social activity, right? Lots of ideas, development of the ideas come as you interact with people. Um, so that's an important element we shouldn't forget. I mean, there's a part of it when you want to be alone in your office when you're writing, actually, but in the initial stages, when you're thinking about ideas, when you're conceptualizing them, it's a, it's a very social activity. The more you meet people, the better you get at it. Um, so I think uh, see research as social, not just as a very individual kind of uh, endeavor.
0: Thank you. Okay, so uh, our next question, Abby, would you like to ask your question about fad topics? Sure. Uh, hi, Professor Gaba, it's such an honor to hear
2: you speak, especially the backstory of your illustrious journey thus far. I was wondering since you and many of us also draw so much inspiration from the news and current affairs and media reporting do you have any tips on avoiding pitfalls when it comes to picking up something that seems really interesting in this time and in the moment, but might really be just a fad?
1: Hmm. <laughs> you know, we study fads as well. So you can study it as a fad, right? Uh, we've studied fads and fashion in, in management research as well. so um i i think um, you know maybe maybe i sort of uh, miscommunicated and and uh, made it seem like a very linear process it is not right so uh, you the bigger point is you know i at least i like to inform my research through qualitative observations of of the business world and what they're doing but then you go back to your office you try to study you understand the literature and and uh you know anything that might inform your observations then you go back so it's it's you know you keep going back and forth in in terms of uh it, it's a iterative process right where you observe something interesting but then you come back to your uh scholarship your your you know uh Papers and, and literature around or uh, related to that, um, you try to understand it from an academic point of view. Then you go back to the world, so it's it's back and forth, and I think that keeps you in one sense um, focused, right, uh, on finding something interesting, right. If if if, a top, if something some behavior is fad, I think that's interesting in itself, right? Why is it a fad? Why is it becoming a fad? Um, you know, um, is it really truly something that organizations are doing, or is it is it um, it is just some rhetoric that they have, right? Uh, decoupling a very important topic in org theory, right? Where we know that organizations do this all the time. Um, you know, there's decoupling of activities which are done for stakeholder management versus, you know, which really affect the operations of the forum. So you can think about it in different ways. I don't know if that answers your question, sort of.
0: <laughs> it also goes back to your point, Viva, something you mentioned very early on is 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 you start with the interesting question.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Which seems to be guiding theme. Um Okay, Jasmine uh, has a question. Would you like to?
1: Oh, yes, sir, the... definitely. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, doc- Dr. Gallo for all of your advice. And I really think your background is so interesting how you're coming from a blend of the humanities and business, so I really relate to that. Um, I guess her, um, my question is for new PhD students and new graduate students in general, discipline is extremely important. And I believe that you have a lot of it to be where you're at. So I was wondering how your discipline evolved from the beginning of your graduate journey to the end, like a summary of that. And if you could look back and give your past self any advice um, on that, what would you give yourself? Yeah. Um, you know, I I have broad interests, <laughs> I guess it's partly because of, you know, the background I have. Um, I did my bachelor's in economics, um, so, then I did my master's in sociology and um, and then I decided to do a PhD which would focus more on organization theory and 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 management um, I think. I think you know. Um, I think you're coming from from different disciplinary backgrounds, the advantage of course is that it helps you see things in different ways right, so you can relate to. Uh, different perspectives. Uh, I think that's that's one of the advantages. Uh, I see it as a strength, right? Um, so it makes you a little bit broad-minded in terms of how you think about a problem and how you address it. Um, but sometimes it also makes it harder, <laughs> right? Um, in the sense that. Uh, what you realize is with the PhD, you are actually aiming to become a deep expert in a very narrow domain, right? So we, we sort of uh, appreciate expertise, deep expertise, but in a narrow domain. That's what the PhD program in some way prepares you for it. It, it focuses you, it narrows you, it specializes you, right? Um, even within a field. Um, but I think,, uh, irrespective of that, if you have different I an mean, disciplinary background, I think it just informs your thinking in <laughs> it informs your thinking, you know, in some ways. I don't know. Did I answer your question? Um, yes, ma'am. Thank you very
2: much.:
0: Great, thank you. Um, Hansen, you're next. Great, thanks. Hi, Professor Riva, thanks for being with us today. And I wish you have a wonderful holiday break. So my question is this, as a scholar, the, the scientific career could be extremely challenging sometimes. And could you share with us, what is the most challenging time in your career so far and how did you manage it? Thank you very much.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And um, I think um, it's very funny, right? So when you join the PhD program, you think if only I would get through my comprehensive exams, life would be easier. You clear your comprehensive exams and then you realize it actually gets harder. Then you feel, you know, if I finish my dissertation, if I just get it done, then I would be, you know, okay. Uh, life will get easier. It doesn't, right? Because then you have to find a job you find a job and you know now you can buy a, a nice mattress, which was my actually dream after I graduated that I'm gonna get a really nice mattress to sleep on. I didn't have one nice one as a graduate student. Um, so, So you can, and then you realize, you know, you have a job and you have essentially been trained for half of that job, right? Because you are, Uh, trained to be a researcher but we don't get trained so well to be a teacher and suddenly you become an assistant professor and you're teaching and you have to go into the classroom so you are again sort of scrambling a little bit. Um, And then you think you know it's life is not getting easier, then of course you say after tenure, it'll get easier, it'll get easier. and it does actually it does, <laughs> so uh, so it's a very convoluted way to tell that I think the most challenging part of our you know our careers are very front loaded uh, i don't know if it is good or bad, but it is really front loaded so the first few years when you become an assistant professor are I think one of the hardest um, in in our career um, and that's what I found the most uh, Um, you know, challenging years of my uh, life as well. And it's, and it's not just because of, you know, uh, the professional demands, it's also about balancing, you know, personal and professional lives, right? So um, at least uh, for many of us, and especially for women, the Early part of our assistant professor career coincides with uh you know the time when we think about having children you know we have families so it, it's so balancing all that i think was very very hard and that was the time i <laughs> i wasn't quite sure you know um that I would make it because you know being in a uh, uh, A new job, assistant professor learning how to teach, you know, trying to publish your research. I wanted to have kids, you know, I had little kids, Um, you know, I had some medical issues with my back, which made me go and leave for a couple of months. It all just sort of was coming together and making it extremely hard uh, and challenging uh, on an everyday basis, I think.
0: Thank you uh, for that question. Uh, Jiang Chen, you're next.
2: So, hi, professor. Thanks for your uh, stories. Uh, So my question is uh, uh, because you have the experience crossing the organizational behavior, organizational theory and strategy. So my question is, would you share with us some of your experience when you do the research in both areas and also what are the boundaries and what are the challenges? You think we should take care of
1: thank mm. you yeah um I think um, I think the way I have i mean so I can think about you know the one way I can think about myself is you know I'm an old terrorist with 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 very keen interest in in you know strategic management issues or the you know issues that concern strategic issues that concern organizations right so again it's about a question that i can ask which could be related to uh, organizational decision making but my or theory background in some way provides me the theoretical toolkit through which i can study those questions and that's a very natural sort of uh uh you know Complementarity I see between what you say as an org theory uh, domain and a strategic management uh, domain, right? Yeah. So the org theory domain it gives me the toolkit I need to study lots of these interesting uh, questions relevant for uh, strategic management of the organizations.
2: Yeah. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Can, you're
2: up. Yes. Uh, Hello, everybody from Milan, Italy, and it's almost 4 a.m. right now in here. Uh, And a very big thank you to the STR division and also Viva for coming. So my question will be a bit more specific to the behavioral theory of the firm. And you have actually done lots of work around the BTOF, including some papers with John. Uh, So first of all, how do you see behavioral theory developing and uh, where is it going? And maybe even more specifically, you know that uh, like this theory has analyzed different firm behaviors such as innovation, uh, m and uh, organizational change in, in connection to performance feedback. So, what other firm behaviors can we explore again uh, with regard to uh, different types of performance feedback? Yeah. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah. Um, thank you for waking up at four a.m. I, you know. Um, I appreciate you being here. Um, I'll have to give you a very biased opinion here because, you know, this is in in sort of my thinking. Um, One thing you realize is that the behavioral theory of the firm is very internally focused theory, right? So it, it talks about organizational processes, it captures the complexity of it in a nice way, but it is very internally focused, right? But we know that organizations sort of exist in a broader environment. Um, and I think that would be an interesting extensions of the behavioral theory when you start taking considerations of how the environment around the organization is actually uh, changing, and how is that sort of impacting how they manage their internal processes and also their decision making, right? And one of the most interesting thing at least you know maybe this is more salient now, Um, um, given the COVID shock, you know, when you have discontinuities in your environment, right? Um, And how do you manage these discontinuities? How do you think about these discontinuities? How are these organizations actually thinking about the COVID shock? Uh, How is it impacting their internal processes? How are they changing them as a consequence of that? Um, Can sort of, you know, what we know from the behavioral theory, uh, How can we sort of study it, but also consider what's happening um, in the external environment in a more sort of uh, systematic way. So I think that's that's something uh, worth exploring going forward. Thank you.
0: I'll remind folks, uh, I'll ask now uh, if you know folks have questions. Feel free to jump in. You can also put your question in the chat. Um, while we're waiting uh, for those, Vibha, maybe a question about what you're what you're working on now. Uh, what sort of research projects do you have going on?
1: So, um, so I, so <laughs> a couple of uh, interesting uh, projects. Um, and I am going back and looking at diffusion processes again once more. Uh, it's been a while since I worked on diffusion as a topic and I one of my recent work is actually um, about uh, diffusions of problems and solutions, right? So when we look at the diffusion literature, a lot of times it is adoption of certain practices. These practices are solutions to some problems, right? Um, that organizations adopt and, and there is, um, there is, uh, but what what I am trying to sort of understand is that, you know, what is the problem that is linked to these solutions that diffuse across organizations, and and how can we study not just the diffusion of the solutions but also the problems or the recognition of the problems? It's it's a very early stage thinking. Yes, you know, working with some co-authors and thinking about it. Uh, so diffusion of problems and solutions, uh, that's one sort of a uh, project, current project I'm working on. Um, I think I'm also interested a lot in understanding, um, uh, there's another one which is looking at how discontinuities, how experiences of uh, managers, uh, prior experiences with shocks and crises actually inform their decision making with the most recent one. Um, so uh, that's another one that I am looking at, yeah. And and I think uh, uh, multiple goals <laughs> and the goal activation problem. How do goals get activated uh, in organizations? At what point in time, which goal becomes salient? I think this is some of the other sort of conceptual ideas I'm thinking about. I don't have a project. I'm waiting, John, for you to uh, respond on uh, the, to talk to me about it, um, but I think uh, I am at least going to uh, continue thinking about multiple goals um, and the trade-offs uh, among multiple goals and its impact on decision making um, in in the near future. <laughs> I guess
0: we have a question from Nisha. I do if he's there. Uh, yeah, uh, hello Vibha. Uh, so uh, my question is that um, often PhD grads are only able to uh, obtain R&Rs. So mm-hmm. we do our best, we try our best to progress the literature uh, and the theory. Uh, however, there is a possibility that the submissions uh, uh, remain with the uh, editors and reviewers by the time we graduate. So yeah. what advice would you offer to students uh, to improve their job prospects, uh, for example, mm. at INSEED? Yeah. Thank you.
1: Um, I think uh, I actually <laughs> feel for the PhD students. I think... Uh, you know, at least when I was in the job market, having a published paper was an exception rather than a norm, but I see it's completely changed in the last uh, uh, you know, decade or, or more, right? So you see PhD students who are going in the job market, the expectation is at least they will have one published papers or some r and and, uh, you know, a research Uh, pipeline, which is already in the review process, right? So there's an enormous pressure on the PhD students to start publishing while they're in the program and have something to show for. Um, I find this a little bit of a worrying trend. I mean, I know this is a trend, but the worry I have here is that the phd students are not sort of you know doing their dissertation or thinking about interesting questions or or you know writing a wonderful dissertation but worrying more about publishing a paper right in whatever way um that's that's a little sort of you know unintended or not so nice outcome i see of this trend right so so at least at NCAA, <laughs> when we are doing, you know, uh, job market invites, uh, of course, you know, if you have a published paper, it matters. But we look at what is your dissertation? Is it interesting? We try to assess whether it'll get published or not. Right. So I think we want to think about you as a scholar, not just as a PhD student coming out with one A publication. Right? I think. Uh, um, so, so, I think it's really important to um, your dissertation is your special project and put all your attention on writing a nice dissertation. Um, that's one thing now, um, if what I also realize is if you know our journals have actually become really good, you know they have quick turnaround times in most of the you know many of all of your review papers and you can see, you know, the journals give you four weeks or six weeks to turn around the review. So we are really um, shortening the review cycles in all the journals. And, and, you know, as an AE, when I was working uh, at SMJ, I always had this 90 day deadline. We had to, uh, you know, more than um, 95% of the manuscripts were returned within 90 days um so but sometimes you know delays happen right uh so i think the reviewing cycles are being sh- and and this is true for other journals as well Org signs amj asq they're all sort of returning manuscripts uh much more quickly sometimes delays happen um and if that's that's the case you know you should write to the editor and ask them you know um uh, where What's going on? Um, and and the editors would tell you, right? I mean, there may be some, um, you know, reasons for the delay, but you should uh, ask. Feel free to ask them. And I think, um, and if if the paper is consequential for for something, I think the editors are always um, willing to sort of speed up the review process, right? Um, sometimes if it helps ju especially junior scholars right or at least they can give you a clear timeline
0: thank you thank you so much maybe an extension of that is and i i know i can speak um uh, about this i everything i learned about responding to reviewers I learned from Biba; <laughs> she does it very well. And I'm wondering, maybe, uh, you know, it, you know, tough revision. A lot of folks are, uh, you know, uh, faced with that. A lot of pressure, as was mentioned, a lot of uncertainty around that. You know, maybe any any tips or you know, general philosophy of approaching uh, revisions and and dealing with uh, tough tough reviews. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I think. <laughs> I think you know, we always hate that reviewer three, or the review, you know the third reviewer or the second reviewer, which drives us nuts when we are respond- you know, working on revisions. We all have those moments, right? Um, but again, um, I think what reviewers also do is they make you um, make you understand what your paper is about, but also what your paper is not about, right? um and that's important right because my approach when i look at the reviewers comment if firstly i wouldn't look at them unless i am like relaxed and you know ready to absorb the feedback you know you know you have to be in the right mood (laughs) um but i think my focus is always really trying to understand what this reviewer is saying right what are they trying to ask you and and Does that and how does, you know, how can you use their comments to think about your research a lot more rigorously about your paper a lot more rigorously, even the execution of the paper, right? And, and a lot of times, I never agree to, you know, everything that the reviewers say, and I push back, but I push back about explaining what my paper is about and what it's not about, right? So I don't think, you know, um, the usual way to approach the reviewer feedback is to say, yes, I will do whatever you tell me to do, uh, because that's how I will publish my paper, right? I, I try to, if I can, distill the comments that will actually make my paper stronger and work really hard on them and address them, and the, and the comments, which I don't think are... Um you know uh, reasonable or addressable in in the context of my paper, I explain very nicely why i can 't uh, incorporate that feedback in the paper, so I also try to give so so I think uh, that's that 's a general approach i I use uh, where I try to explain what i 'm doing, but I also explain very well what i 'm not doing and why i 'm not doing I think thank you
0: so uh cena you have a question yes uh so thank you viva for for the interesting conversation so as a
1: a junior faculty i mean not totally unrelated to the previous conversation about uh how how good it is to reach out to people Uh, so my question is about community
0: building in the field and one of the things that i'm fascinated by the strategy field is these amazing communities that. you know, the scholars have built. So uh, any words of advice on how I as a junior faculty can contribute to like these different communities or build such communities with peers? um, I'd be appreciative of uh, hearing that.
1: (laughs) I love spending time with junior scholars and here's why. Because they're most updated in terms of you know their reading of the literature, in terms of you know uh, they are working on cutting edge ideas. It's it's you offer a lot in that sense, right? They're the ones who are sort of exploring you know the new methodological techniques and tools and applying them in their research. So I absolutely you know. Um, so when we have, so you have a lot to contribute actually to uh, uh, as a junior scholar uh, because you are at the cutting edge of the field in some ways, right? And and that's my uh, you know interacting with junior scholars is my way of sort of you know understanding what's the exciting developments in the methodology in in the you know topics and. Uh, Context, research settings, data sources, everything, right? So um, you have a lot to offer uh, in, in the conversations, I think. Um, so you bring a lot to the table. I mean, that's, that's what um, I would think. Um,
0: Thank you, uh, Sina, for that question. Uh, Zhang Chen, you have a question?
2: Yes. So uh, thanks for uh, letting me to ask another question. So my question is: What is the usage of analysis when we study strategy? So uh, last the semester I read uh, some classics books. So I noticed that those books they use case studies. So uh, the authors uh, study the structure of the firm and also the history of the firm. So, mm. but. Uh, So when I read some strategic literature, it seems that people also use the activities like merges and acquisitions as the unit of analysis. So I'm thinking uh, which one is the proper one for us to study strategy? And uh, what is the difference of that? Yeah, yeah. Thank
1: you. Um, i think i think in strategy we start, we take organization as a unit of analysis more often than not so that's that's our unit of analysis right um but what happens is when you are asking certain questions um the answers may not sort of may lie at a level above or below right so and i think that's that's uh, So multi-level thinking is something which which is, I think, quite common in in the strategy field as well, right? So uh, because sometimes you are studying sort of decision-making at the organizational level, but you may have very interesting cross-level effects in terms of looking at, uh, you know, uh, the environmental variables or variables one level below in terms of subunits or individuals and so forth, right? So... Um, I don't think, uh, you know, uh, one unit is better than the other, and we should study one unit, but I think it's, again, depends on your research question, but I think it's worth sort of looking one unit above and below your core um, unit of analysis to see if there are some cross, interesting cross-level effects that can explain, um, that can help you make some predictions or explain some, you know, effects. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you. Uh, maybe an extension of that, Vibha, is, is uh, how do you come by data sets? Uh, you know, data is obviously on the minds of everybody, uh, um, and you've had good luck with that. Uh, I know the CVC data, obviously. How do you do that nowadays?
1: Collect new data, you mean? Yeah,
0: like where do you, yeah, where, where do you where do you source your your you know your data? It seems like the field is prizing proprietary data sets and things like that more and more. Um, mm. You know, do you get it through Exec Ed or or what's
1: your approach? <laughs> you know, uh, John, this is a difficult question to ask again because your data collection will be informed by the question, right? um it's hard to uh sort of decide what data you want to collect and um and then you know I, I think i think i find it easier to collect data if i know what i want to collect which is informed again you know by the question that i'm asking having said that i think i think there is we have a we have access to a lot more data now than we had, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years ago and more interesting data, right? So a lot of activities that, you know, what's what's very fascinating to me is um, we have access to um, conversational data now. What do I mean by that, right? So just to give you a good example, all of us know about Glassdoor, This this is a website, where, you know, people from different companies come and talk about their company, right, Um, and so there is a lot of textual data where people are articulating things about their company, right, and I've seen PhD students using that data source as a way to study culture about an an organization, and they're using that textual data to infer some sort of a um, you know, associated patterns in that data and to sort of bring out some themes which could be related to the culture of the organization, right? Um, something like that, I don't think was accessible to us, right? All these um, discussion boards that you have sometimes internal to the company, and if you get access to those, those are interesting sources of uh, data. Um, people are scraping, you know, data from LinkedIn, from Twitter, all these social media platforms where people leave evidence of their thinking about something, right? And, and these are interesting sources of data. Um, but, but of course, you know, it depends on what question you're asking,
0: so. Fair enough. Um, we have just a few more minutes. If anybody has a question, um, enter it into chat and I will absolutely uh, call on you. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to shift gears here in the last few minutes, and and uh, as is typical with our Meet the Scholar series, is uh, ask slight, slightly more idiosyncratic questions, um, and I'm going to put my own spin on it, or, or, or I know Samin always asks uh, about books and things. I wondered, many of us, you mentioned you were coming out of quarantine, uh, many of us are still in it, and wondering how did you cope, what was your uh i don't know binge guilty pleasure or how did what you know what did you what is something you did to help get through the long days <laughs> uh inside
1: of lockdown with your family yes <laughs> uh, i think um you know i absolutely this was this was uh an absolute pleasure to spend so much time with the kids because we were all, and with my husband, because we were all at home. But after a while, it also got too much, too much time together. Um, but so we found our corners in the house where those were our you know, spaces where we would be uh, when we didn't want to interact with each other. Um, so having that space was helpful. <laughs> I think um, going on long walks, um, that was, that was nice. Yeah. So I think you maintained your sanity, but just going with long walks, I think. Um, and you could do that um, in a relatively safe way. Um, I think, um, what else? Um, my younger daughter got me interested in cooking. I hadn't cooked for a while, not because I didn't like it. I simply didn't have time to do cooking. Um, So we cooked with her. Um, She would she was she's 11 years old, she would go to her library find these interesting recipe books and um, then come home and uh, us to make things so we actually with her uh made pasta right from the scratch with the dough (laughs) you know we would make uh you know try different things with her um some of them not always healthy but but it's okay (laughs) so she got me into cooking and i i enjoyed that part also a little bit
0: and now that you know, what are you looking forward to most? Uh, what's on your to-do list once this is all over?
1: Oh God, I I think the travel, travel. I am I am so looking forward to just traveling without any restrictions. Um, I realized that we live in a very global world, and especially if you stay in a small country like Singapore, you're always traveling because you live in a very small place, so you just travel all the time. Um, and with the COVID shock, our life became very local, and we're not used to uh, living a very local life. It reminded of me of you know living like our grandparents did, where they would stay in their town or in their little uh, you know, locale and be happy to spend years there and not have any, you know, they weren't, you know, going around traveling, but our lives are different. So I'm really looking forward to traveling again without any restrictions. Yeah.
0: I thought that might be what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, you
1: know that, right.
0: Well, uh, uh uh, I think we're sort of at the end of our time here. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for uh, your generosity, uh, your time, your insights here. I think uh, this was just a great discussion. And it's always a pleasure to speak with you. And, um, and just, you know, we really appreciate your uh, sharing your wisdom with uh, the STR group.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you, John. And, and of course, again, the STR uh, division for and the people associated with it for inviting me. And for all of you for, you know, taking time. I know you're in different time zones and it's odd hours for many of you. So um, thank you uh, for, for joining in the conversation. It was uh, and lovely to see some familiar faces as well. Um, Metin, I can see you on my screen. <laughs>
0: Uh, a big thanks to Joao for all her uh, efforts in putting these together and the logistics behind it. So a big thank you there. Uh, a big thanks to the uh, STR leadership executive committee, uh, Tim, I saw Heather uh, was on earlier, uh, Aseem. Um So, uh, you know, a big thanks to all all, all the folks, you know, started last year, Sumita, under Sumita's, uh guidance, Tim has continued this, they, they're working well, they're well attended as you can see, uh, and there, there'll be more, right? Uh, Jao, uh, there's, there's more ahead?
1: Yes, join us for more. And uh, since you're all here, you will receive the invitation for the next time. So hope to see you there. Thank you, John. thank you, Vibra, for a wonderful, wonderful session. Thanks, thank you sure.
0: all, see take you. care.